Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Intelligent Transport Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Antonio. I'm also the editor of Intelligent Transport. If you're not familiar with Intelligent Transport, we're the leading information source on connectivity in urban mobility. We cover all the latest developments in smart and sustainable urban passenger transport, from buses to e-scooters. There's a printed and digital magazine you can subscribe to for free, as well as a whole host of useful insights and features on our website. There's also our annual Intelligent Transport Conference, which happily enough supports this episode. You can hear more about it later on. You might be thinking, why launch a podcast? Well, it's because we know that those working in the urban mobility space are extremely busy, and we wanted the information we're sharing to be as accessible as possible. I know for a fact it's not always easy to find the time to sit and read a magazine or even an article on a website anymore. So really we wanted to offer a way for you to stay engaged with the discussion even while you're doing something else. Even on our commutes our time isn't always our own. So if you're listening to this at the same time as writing an email to a colleague on your way into the office, I hope we've gone some way to achieving our goal already. In each episode, I'll be having an in-depth conversation with a transport expert or two to get their thoughts and opinions on the latest trends disrupting the industry. It's a really interesting time in this space, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak with some of those leading the discussion. So, with that in mind, I think it's about time we got things underway with our guest today, transport policy expert, Dr. Tom Vuger. Thank you very much, Tom, for joining me today. Um, It would be great just to get an introduction from you so that our listeners can understand who you are, what your route has been like into the transport industry and what you've done up to this point and what you're working on at the moment. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much for having me on this. Um, my name is Tom Fuge and until quite recently I've been with the International Transport Forum, the ITF, at the OECD in Paris. Um, there I have been involved in most of our work on vehicle automation and the kind of business models and services um, likely enabled by them um, once they are being implemented um, on, a, on a wider scale like um, shared mobility or truck automation on motorways. A um, little bit of work on um, big data and how that relates um, to transport, all of that from a um, policy point of view um, previous to prior to that. Um, um, I've been another um, policy role in transport um, with the United Nations, where um, I was in a secondment to the Saudi Arabian government, where I was advising the deputy minister for roads at the Ministry of Transport on um, road safety, um, looking after road safety inspections, road safety audits, setting something like that up, um, implementing traffic management systems um, on motorways, that kind of thing. And before that, um, various roles in um, um, consultancy and in um, in academia. So my whole career pretty much been in in transport, um, in intelligent transport systems, ITS. Um, more recently on vehicle automation and all those kind of topics. But actually, I started my career um, with that um, as a research assistant, um, doing my PhD when I was working on um, early. European Commission funded projects on what we're actually seeing now, um, these um, low speed, lightweight, um, urban automated um, urban shuttles. And so kind of come back um, to that topic over the last couple of years. You've obviously seen seen a lot during your time in the industry and seen a lot of change as 
as we all have, I suppose. Um, we've only been intelligent transport for for less than two years, but already since we made that transition, we've we've seen a huge amount of change. Um, so I wanted to kind of get your take and get your view on what we're seeing in the urban mobility sector at the moment in terms of how public transport is faring with uh, so much competition um, from new shared mobility options. Uh, what do you what do you think of what we're seeing at the moment? Um, what we are seeing, I think, is um, the legacy um, transport modes changing on a kind of detail basis. If you look at it, um, but not overall. And then the new players coming in um, to some level quite um, aggressively, and the question whether or not it's one complementing the other or if it's one taking over from the other and I think that's where it all gets a little bit tricky so um, with legacy transport systems um, buses for example um, those vehicles have become a lot cleaner a lot more um, easy to drive um, a lot more convenient for passengers particularly for elderly and um, disabled to um, board such a vehicle Um, So in detail, a lot has changed um, over the last decades, but um, in terms of use, I think it's um, somewhat less. I think um, in terms of the perception, um, what nobody really knows if she she said it or not, but what um, is being attributed to Margaret Thatcher about, um, I think 26 is the cutoff date. If at that age you're still on a bus, you're a failure. I don't think the industry has been able to change much about that, although many people probably will say that is unfair. Um, But I think it has been small details where there have been huge changes. But in terms of what these are doing, not really. So um, it is still, um, in almost all cases, um, fixed line uh, mass transport. Um, Some people are now saying the new modes can kind of take over from that. Um, I believe more it will be... um, that there's role for, for any of those. So in, in large cities, dense cities, you will certainly have corridors where you will need these um, kind of transport services, um, fixed line, moving a lot of people. Um, but in more low demand areas or low demand times, looking at buses again, um, you can see many of them um, being empty much of the time, um, being subsidized. And obviously that is not very economical. and certainly um, new kind of modes can help um, ride hailing certainly has been um, from a policy point of view um, quite controversial um, there have been many conflicts with taxis for example but certainly um, it would look like they're here to stay and then there are all these new dockless um, shared mobility solutions um, like um, electric scooters electric bikes um, at the moment, we are certainly seeing these growing and growing um, just here in Brussels, uh, where I'm sitting right now. Um, I think I spotted the fourth or fifth um, provider of um, electric scooters. Um, I think I saw on LinkedIn, um, what was it? Was it Madrid possibly that have 12 now? Certainly this can't go on like that. It certainly at some point um, um, there will be a contraction in the market, probably um, a correction of all of that. but. I think again, these are also here to stay, and they have a have a role to play. Particularly, and this is where it gets interesting for the legacy carriers, the last mile issue that has always been a problem. Probably, these can 
help a lot. So as you can see here from that, I think my my vision is much of the legacy public transport probably needs to continue being improved, but has a role um, and the new modes adding to it to um, have a real alternative to the private car in cities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned Madrid there with its uh, numerous um, suppliers and uh, operators of shared bike schemes. I think it's actually 18 now they're up to. Uh, that, that stat has been going around LinkedIn the last couple of days. Uh, it's been kind of unavoidable. Um, but I, you know, I think you're absolutely right in saying that it is unsustainable to keep seeing these companies and these operators uh, of new mobility services pop up um, in the way they are at the moment um, because ultimately they will bottom out eventually um, just because, as you said, the, the market structure just will not be able to support it in the long term. So that kind of brings me on to what I wanted to ask you about next. Um, and it is the importance for those businesses of being able to find an operational and business model that really works for them and will make them a success in the space that they're in, whether that is shared bikes and shared scooters or whether that is uh, public transport operators having to partner up uh, to a much larger extent than they have done now with private operators. Um, do you think there is a surefire way that these operators can work together in the future? Or do you think it's going to take a lot of, uh, a lot of trial and error in the next few years? Um, trial and error um, probably is quite likely. I mean, the partnership is um, absolutely necessary and you can already see these emerging here and there. Um, I also don't think it's a, a one-size-fits-all solution um, globally, um, perhaps not even within Europe, perhaps not even within one country. I think this needs to be um, very much um, city-driven and um, cities will have different policies, different transport policies, will have different layouts, different cultures and all of that. But definitely um, we've seen some players being very aggressive in the market um, backed by venture capital, not being in a position where they really need to make um, a profit right now yet. Um, and this really has led um, to the conflicts um, with others. So absolutely, there have to be partnerships in um, some parts of the world. In Germany, for example, public transport is already um, in most large cities um, being provided um, in corporation. So there's one unified branding for all modes, um, but it's behind that. But no, no public transport user would actually ever see or feel that. But behind that are individual um, operators um, and all of that. So I think that could be a good example. And very importantly, this would have to include not just um, the legacy modes, but the new ones as well. And um, as I said, as I said, um, there are many. Um, parts of the world where that is already happening to some point. I think there's also an overlap here to um, mobility as a service that probably is um, enough material for a webinar on its own or maybe even a ser series of webinars, but um, I don't want to, so I don't want to go too much um, into mobility as a service. Um, also, people kind of define this def um, differently. I certainly don't mean the um, mobile phone style kind of subscription to different modes and all of that, but just 
the idea that you have a unified platform um, on which all providers of any type of mobility are present and you can based on characteristics, price, time, convenience, um, environmental performance, whatever, pick your ideal route, get it booked, have your tickets in there and all of that. So um, probably a mass light or something like that. So um, I think it is essential there is a platform like that, um, but ultimately it will be difficult um, for city officials, policymakers to really um, force people to be on that unless you um, um, connect it to a license or something like that. I'm not entirely sure um, how feasible that is, but um, ideally it should be um, the carrots, not the sticks. Ideally, there should be a way that um, everybody involved in providing urban mobility comes together in a partnership and um, that and the second um, topic certainly here is data as well from a transport policy point of view that it's possible to keep an eye on um, any modal shift effects, any undesired effects. Um, but yeah, the partnership is key. Everybody um, being present and users having the possibility to um, look at all the options and have one central way of um, booking it. It's interesting in that the technology needed to enable this kind of service is pretty much available to us. Um, so how, to what extent do you think it's down to policymakers now to kind of drive operators, authorities and governments to, to make that change and make those introductions? I think it's essential that that happens um, because a lot can go wrong. I mean, as I mentioned, um, many players being um, quite aggressive, um, pushing into the market and um, often not giving access to data. So it's really difficult for authorities to know what are uh, modal shift effects. So from a transport policy point of view, both on a national level as well as on a city authority level, it has to be about improving mobility, improving access, improving cities, um, decreasing congestion, improving air quality, all those kind of things. And um, in whatever way mobility is being provided, it needs to contribute to that. So with ride hailing, um, a frequent complaint and um, to some level um, that that's right. I mean, there is data out there um, that supports that that ride hailing takes away from um, public transport from shared modes to, in most cases, single occupancy um, cars. So um, that is not a positive trend that will generate um, more traffic that will lower vehicle occupancy rates um, that certainly won't have any um, any positive effects on, on cities and, and all of that. So that needs to be avoided. Many of these um, automated urban shuttles I, I mentioned at the start very clearly um, take away from active modes, from cycling, from walking even. And for those who are unable to walk, um, elderly, disabled, it is great to have something like that there to provide mobility um, to them as well. Absolutely fantastic. but. If um, able-bodied people um, who um, would now work 
walk, um, use a system like that instead uh, with obesity rates and all of that, um, that's not good. So just two um, very obvious examples um, of things that could could go wrong. And it is not ideal that it goes wrong and you see the first signs of it and then you try and change something. Ideally, licenses for new systems are given um, based on access to data and this data access needs to um, work in terms of privacy protection and protection of commercial data. Again, this another topic for, again, probably a series of webinars. Um, but um, so just assuming we can find a way that um, that is being taken care of, there needs to be access, more or less real-time access to regulators if industry feels they can't be trusted, perhaps uh, an independent third party in between, but there needs to be um, access to data, data analytics, and um, in a near real-time um, way, the question of how does this affect modal shift needs to be um, possible to be answered. And there also needs to be a, a flexible setup that if data analytics supports the argument that something is going wrong here, um, policymakers need to be in uh, a position to say, look, um, you cannot operate here or you need to change the way you operate um, or maybe um, the sticks um, that there needs to be some kind of taxes um, based on low vehicle occupancy rates or things like that. But it's absolutely essential from an early point of view that um, decision makers have a say in how this works and are able to see to see how it works. And again, ideally, this should happen in a partnership um, that they give a flexible environment to try out new things um, with the caveat that they can at some point say, look, this doesn't work for us anymore. But um, ideally, again, in, in the partnership. Yeah, of course, of course. That's obviously a really important part um, of connecting all these services together, uh, that open data and data sharing uh, part of this is, is absolutely crucial to ensuring that these new services are as accessible as possible to the most people as possible. Um, so would you say that part of that is also connecting those services then with their surroundings and with infrastructure? So for example, connected and autonomous vehicles, but also things like smart traffic management systems uh, to ensure that there is decent traffic flow both on the roads and on the pavements for pedestrians? Absolutely. Um, in terms of traffic management, um, I don't think there is much need for it yet. Um, if automated vehicles um, come into cities quickly, then yes, absolutely. Um, I think the kind of traffic management system we have now with traffic lights um, and all of that don't make much sense for um, automated vehicles. So certainly more flexible approaches are possible there and obviously the current systems are based on a driver sitting in a car and um, looking out for these kind of signals um, with automated vehicles that will be um, communicated electronically so once that happens um, absolutely yes and cities need to get ready so this discussion needs to happen absolutely yes 
Um, in terms of other infrastructure, I think we're already seeing it um, with um, ride hailing, um, shared mobility. Ideally, those kind of systems um, that are flexible, like ride hailing, um, like transportation network companies, but um, have a larger element of more people sharing a vehicle, like what Lyft is doing or what Via or in Via Van in Europe um, are doing. For these kind of systems and studies the ITF has been doing on those types of systems have shown that if there's a large model shift to these kind of systems, um, we probably need a lot less cars on the road. Um, we probably need a lot less um, parking and this could free up spaces to be used um, for different purposes in cities. And we would then have a trend and in the US in many cities, um, this is already absolutely happening. Um, the move from ma parking management to managed curb access and even um, a redesign of um, the road um, layout in terms of, we've talked mainly about passenger transport, but I think um, with all these new modes and services, there will be uh, much more of a gray area between both um, passenger transport and freight transport. So in cities, um, uh, cities probably need to be redesigned quite a lot with traffic management, but also loading, unloading zones for likely much smaller um, freight vehicles um, for curb access um, and all of that. In, in the US, you also see um, in some cases um, waiting pickup areas for um, ride hailing and these types of services that actually resemble bus stops in a way, but um, slightly more comfortable versions of that. So on one hand, if it all goes well, cities might end up with more space to be um, used for better purposes to make cities more livable, but also those new type of services need certain alterations um, to the road infrastructure um, to make them um, work in the most efficient way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a huge part of this, um, you mentioned curbside management there, which in the last 12 or 18 months has become a real trend that we're seeing uh, crop up again and again. And a huge part of that is monetizing the curbside and making sure that uh, cities have almost a new revenue stream that they're not taking advantage of. but also ensuring that cities are best utilizing the space they have available to them because with urbanization obviously comes um space becomes available at a real premium um, absolutely yes i mean it's the same as with parking it used to be called parking pricing in the old days um spending money so it became parking management and i think if we talk about managed curb access it's um the kind the same kind of euphemism i think in many cases it will be about pricing um and i've been talking about the carrots and sticks and um the carrots are always nicer but um probably there will have to be sticks and this certainly is one of them that um different um, providers wanting to have curb access need um, to pay for it but again, from a policy point of view, that is the way how you regulate it. So um, I think it's perfectly understandable that this is what we're seeing, and I don't think that will go away necessarily. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. 
we touched really uh, quickly on connected and autonomous vehicles uh, in that last section. And uh, I remember you writing an article for us last year around around cabs and regulation. Do you think we've seen any true progress in the last 12 months around that in that area? Or is it obviously it's going to be an ongoing thing, but it seems particularly difficult to kind of put your finger on a time where things are going to be set in stone in the way that they are for regular road vehicles. Would you agree? Um, I tend to be um, a little bit negative. I would call it realistic about um, fully automated vehicles. So um, the lower automation levels, of course, we are seeing that already. And it's a clear business case for car manufacturers to put them into their cars and all of that. Um, the kind of vehicle automation I think we are talking about here that would have real impacts on cities and on public transport and all of that would be um, the level four, five, um, very high levels of automation where you don't have a steering wheel or any um, kind of uh, way of um, operating a vehicle from the inside. It really is um, like a taxi or a shared um, minibus, but it's automated, it's without a driver. and there I have not really seen much. Um, in um, my presentation, um, I usually close with a note of caution and looking at the Gartner hype cycle where um, since last year we're now at the point where um, we are on the other side of the curve and there might be a phase of disillusionment um, before this really picks up or it might even go away completely. And um, then I always show two photos that look remarkably similar. Um, so I mentioned early EU-funded system um, projects on these low-speed urban shuttles. They were from running from 2001. There was a, a number of um, um, cont um, projects, one after the other, some slightly overlapping until I think two years ago. Um, there probably will be new projects on that as well. Um, Actually, one of the partners in one of those projects that started in 2001 already had a system running from 1999, um, so 20 years ago, in um, a business park, Rivium, um, outside Rotterdam. Um, it's working in a reasonably simple environment, but um, in some sections shared with normal, transport, uh, normal traffic with other um, cars, cyclists being in the Netherlands. Um, it works. Um, and the slide always shows so the photo of that vehicle and a photo of these three or four main, um, and I apologize for, um, to them, but um, main operators of these um, low speed, lightweight urban shuttles. Um, they look remarkably similar. They do remarkably similar things and um, very good photo opportunities for politicians or um, <laughs> mayors to stand in front saying um, our town, future of mobility, we achieved it. But really in terms of having a real impact on urban transport, um, this being last mi first mile, last mile shuttles that really enable a huge modal shift um, to public transport, I don't think we're seeing that. Um, and then other providers of that kind of technology would be um, people like Waymo, um, cruise automation um, in the US, and um, they have been remarkably slow um, 
particularly Waymo being part of the Google family. Um, so with that sort of Bay Area mentality and um, being quite happy to take risks and all of that, and even they haven't really um, gotten to real systems that are not just testing, piloting, but really carrying passengers. So given how long they've been um, attempting to do that, I would have assumed they have 20 large cities in the US um, where you can do um, origin to destination. Um, you just order one of the vehicles and it comes and picks you up and they haven't been able to really do that yet. So that is, those are my reasons for saying um, I don't see it really having happened yet. Um, I'm happy um, if one of those um, people I just mentioned or maybe some somebody else comes up with a system and it really works and there's a huge uptake and I wouldn't completely rule it out. But for the time being, I don't see that happening very soon. Um, having said that, um, cities need to get ready for it. it, it I don't mean um, don't worry about automated vehicles. It will be another two decades until you even need to worry about it. That's absolutely not my point. But in terms of revolutionizing mobility in the next couple of months, I'm skeptical. Yeah, of course. Would you say that the pressure on cities to kind of implement these projects and pilots and trials is kind of unnecessary given the kind of pressures that cities are under to get mass transit right um, in the first instance? Um, absolutely. I, I agree with that statement. Yes. Um, I think um, unless you have money to burn and probably very few cities have, um, I think there is um, there are better opportunities to spend your money. And exactly it's that. It's um, upgrading public transport, um, adding new lines, maybe adding um, light rail and all of that, um, maybe coming up with your own system of um, slightly more dynamic um, bus lines and all of that, not going to completely um, um, demand-driven one, but some clever ideas you can do with what you have now. So yeah, I, I fully agree with that, but I also fully understand um, the pressure that is there. It, it is a, a huge topic from a policy point of view, um, policy point of view, from a technology point of view, there are pretty insane amounts of venture capital pouring in. Um, everybody is racing to be the one um, to make it work. So um, yes, there are better things to do, but I'm also probably would be finding it difficult um, to say um, what else to do rather than um, to some degree, trying to play with those um, new technologies and trying to find a way to, to make them work. Yeah, of course. Well, I think that uh, probably brings us to a close uh, on this episode. Um, but thank you very much again for, for joining me today and uh, for sharing your insights with our, with our new listeners. Um, and I'm sure we'll speak again in the future. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Luke. Well, that just about concludes our first episode, and I really hope that you enjoyed it. My thanks once again to Tom Vuger for his time and his insights. It was great to speak with him again and get his thoughts on the kinds of changes we're seeing in the mobility marketplace at the moment, and also what we might be seeing down the road a little way. It'll be fascinating to see what kind of convergence will take place between market participants in the coming months and years, especially as we are already beginning to see partnerships that I think we may previously have thought impossible. Now, 
A quick reminder that this episode was brought to you in association with our very own Intelligent Transport Conference. This year, you can join a host of expert speakers from across the globe on the 5th and 6th of November at London's Royal Lancaster Hotel for two days of high-level discussion, debate and networking. The 2019 conference is the third edition and we'll be building on what's gone before, hosting topical forums about connecting urban mobility. To find out more, or if you're interested in attending, speaking or sponsoring, head to intelligenttransport.com forward slash intelligent hyphen transport hyphen conference and click on the contact us tab. We'll be back with our next episode in May and to make sure you don't miss it, you can subscribe now on SoundCloud or iTunes. In the meantime, don't forget you can also grab a free subscription to Intelligent Transport through our website. It's the best way to keep up to date with the latest news and features on intelligenttransport.com. Thanks a lot for listening and I hope to welcome you back for the next episode soon.